In this episode of Doctor Who Podshock, we go back in time for an interview with Terence Dix. The White Robot Files, Episode 1, Doctor Who News, all that and more in this episode of Doctor Who Podshock. The following is a production of Art Trap Productions, brought to you by the Gallifreyan Embassy and has been made possible by supporting subscribers and donations from listeners like you. This episode brought to you by Podshock Supporting Subscribers. Go to arttrap.com slash supporter to become a supporting subscriber. Support the show and get extra content and other bonuses. This episode also brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download at audiblepodcast.com slash arttrap. Over 75,000 titles to choose from for your iPod or MP3 player. This episode also supported by the Doctor Who Podshock podcast companion app for the iPhone, iPad, and iPod Touch, now available in the iTunes App Store. Live from the belly of a shark, it's Doctor Who Podshock. Doctor Who Podshock. Okay, well, let's do it now. I you know, whatever it is, if it's valuable, send it to us. <laughs> For the best in all things Doctor Who, it's Doctor Who Podshock, the podcast all about Doctor Who, the longest-running science fiction television program with Louis Trapani. Hello. Ken Deep. Hello. James Norton. Hello. News. Fabulous. Reviews. Oh, no. And fan mail for James. Uh, for 40,000. Doctor Who Podshock from the Gallifrey Embassy. You know, that guy James was really cool. Oh, yeah, we blew that. I'm the Doctor, and who are you? And who are you? The Gallifrey Embassy, in its 26th year now, presents <laughs> Doctor Who Podshock, episode 233. My name is Ken Deep, alongside Mr. Louis Trapani. Hello again. And across the great pond for me is Mr. James Norton. Hello again. <laughs> Deja vu. Deja vu indeed. Yes, it's deja vu all over again, as this is the second attempt at recording Doctor Who episode 233 due to some technical difficulties. We're back and trying to recreate this episode, which (laughs) won't happen. So all the spontaneity is gone. Spontaneity. Spontaneity. Where the hell did I get that from? (laughs) All right, let's start it again. We're recording at an odd hour with odd circumstances. With odd people. That's why I have spontaneity. <laughs> well, that's okay. Well, Happy New Year. It's our first show recording together since last year, so I hope everyone had a wonderful... Second show, technically. Well, yes. <laughs> but for our listeners, it's the first time they're hearing us since uh, 2010, so happy 2011, and I hope everyone had a wonderful and um, enjoyable holiday season. Yeah. <laughs> okay, don't be so enthusiastic, James. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That was like a month ago. <laughs> did we have a holiday season? I, I suppose we did. Yeah, I sort of have a vague memory walking around prancing with a Santa hat on. It feels like quite a long time ago now, actually. Yeah, a couple snowstorms passed, and here we are, together again. Hey, when we originally recorded this episode, it was William Hartnell's birthday. Well... Sadly, it no longer is. I mean, it still is his birthday that day, but it's not longer his birthday today. So belated happy birthday to uh, William Hartnell, and I'm sure if he was around, he'd be very pleased if, to hear us wish him well. So in other timely news, let's go to the Doctor Who newsroom. Oh, 
Ah, the wonderful old sound effect. <laughs> We're in the newsroom. Yeah, so, I've missed it. I've missed that sound. Uh, I haven't heard it while we're recording for a while. Anyway, so, so the BBC Worldwide launched classic Doctor Who on YouTube recently on the 4th they of have, January. Yeah, they have their own channel now. That's, they have their own channel. Uh, it's got lots of little clips of uh, from the classic series and also previews from forthcoming DVD releases. And it's a great thing. It's a great thing for existing fans to check out some classic clips of Doctor Who and the new viewers as well and the Beeb full credit to them really because we've taken them to task in the past for you know not necessarily being at the front end in terms of technology and um, re releasing episodes at different times in the States and the UK but they really are on the ball with this now and it's great as well because the channel complements um, the classic Doctor Who Twitter account at Classic DW, which is run by To Entertain. Yeah, so. I think Dan, does it Dan Hall, I believe, does that? Yeah, so. yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah, and I think, I mean, basically it's it's set up so that they can help promote and publicize upcoming DVD releases. And as we record this the second time now, <laughs> we uh, the first time we were saying we're, they were just about to release Meglos. So now the, it's now I believe have it. It was just released recently. Yeah, yes. Meglos and the Dominators are actually came in the mail yesterday. So that's the advantage of re-recording. Is suddenly we're a few days ahead of, ahead of the game. Just time travel. Facts, right. Timey wimey, wibbly wobbly. Timey wimey thing with this one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what else do we have? Uh, Torchwood, uh, A New World, has a name change now, which normally we're not heavy on Torchwood news, but this is this is pretty significant in that it's changed to Torchwood Miracle Day. Mm. And the a bit of spoilery <laughs> news because they did reveal sort of the storyline. So... Can it really be a spoiler if Russell T. Davies and the cast in a press announcement turn around and tell you what the story is? The yeah, premise? well, that's that's what I said. The, to me, that's kind of like borderline. Like, yeah. Unless you're one of those totally head-in-the-ground ostrich things going on, you really um, you can't help but find out that this whole Miracle Day is about the, the storyline is, is basically going basically to be at, at, on one day, suddenly people stop dying. Yeah, and nobody the dies. Day, there's nobody dying, and the next day there's nobody dying. Suddenly, it's a problem because yeah. people are still being born, and and then those that are dying aren't really dead, and they come back. And uh, but the thing is that they had changed the name from the New World to Miracle Day so that not to give anything away. But I don't, I, I wouldn't. If you had said Miracle Day from day one, I still wouldn't have guessed that. You know, as far as the storyline yeah. goes. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's not like I don't know. It's just. Yeah, okay, there's a, there's a sort of... It makes sense when you hear the, the storyline. Yes, it's kind of coming together. But if you, like you said, Lewis, if you didn't say what the storyline is, you would be no further ahead. And and really, the New World is probably more like a like a working title or that's, Blue Harvest. Yeah. That's what they've said. That's what David yeah. has said, to sort yeah. of hide the we real title. The United States and blah, blah, yeah. blah. 
and I, d I don't know how much of that is is true whether it really was a, a working title or whether he then just completely decided to change direction sort of halfway through writing it because it was a uh, revenge of the jedi before it was return of the jedi <laughs> mm. <laughs> mm. so well this is, this is interesting they've, they've begun filming already in los angeles yep. and then they go i think for a week in cardiff and then come back to la so the, the production has already begun yes and uh, some you know some spoilery ish day one filming day two filming things have come out really you know a few street scenes in LA there's been more casting news since the last yeah. time reported. more and more actors and actresses are are, are being announced so that's yeah. well they had Alex, uh, Alexa Havins from All My Children and Detchen Le uh, Lechman from Dollhouse uh, mm -hmm. join the cast they both are working as CIA agents one's a CIA watch analyst and the other one's a CIA agent and when I say CIA, as far as I know, we're not talking about the Celestial Intervention Agency. As far oh, well, as that would be very cool <laughs> if that was the case. Yes. Nice tie-in, certainly. But they join, of course, Eve Miles, uh, Bill Pullman, and uh, Mackay Pfeiffer mm. um, to the series, yeah. which, um, you know, we were joking about it uh, off-air a little bit with Bill Pullman being on board, who is a terrific actor, and but we were kind of drawing the parallels to Independence Day, which... I guess. Well, he can redeem so himself here. <laughs> I know, yeah. I'm not a big fan. I'm, I'm not yeah. any kind of fan. I'm not an electric fan. I'm not a, <laughs> a, a, a fan that you wave with your hand. I'm not any kind of fan of Independence Day. No, no, exactly. Nor the director. No on the subject, yeah. yeah. But that's nothing to say, you know, nothing against Bill Pullman because he is a fantastic actor and I'm sure he will do a terrific job playing Oswald, one of the, the show's villains. So, uh... Yeah, I, I can see him playing a villain. Yeah, I think I think he'll be really, really good. And well, it's it's one of those situations where he's he's so well known for a certain type of character that when an actor, especially someone like Bill Pullman, who's been around for a while, has an opportunity to stretch and do something different, like Christopher yeah. Lloyd, let's say in Star Trek Three, where he suddenly he's known for a, being a comedic actor and then he's suddenly playing a bad guy. When you have a, when you give an an actor a chance to try something different, I think a lot of times they really sink their teeth into it. So I have high hopes that that that, that this is what Bill Pullman is going to do. Yeah, I'm sure about that too. I'm sure he will be spectacular. I think it's a situation where, you know, he may have said, "Watch what I can do. This. Watch what I can do with this. Watch me deliberately go against the the image that I have as far as the roles I've played in the past." So, mm. has there been any uh, confirmation since the last time we recorded this same episode about the transmission when this is going to be released? We know it's summer of this year, and there were reports of July first. And then when we were recording last time, no, I don't think they've made an official announcement. Okay. Um, yeah, and do, as far as I know, there haven't been. Do we know if it will be a simultaneous release, both in the UK and the US? I know orig that original bogus That's announcement. That's what they alluded to. And, oh, okay. Uh, I, I can't see the the real reason why they would um, backtrack from that position, particularly with Children of Earth pretty much being simultaneous, right? Yeah, and, they, so. and they've said that that they that Fridays is the is the the night that they want to air, which to me 
See, this is weird. Fridays used to be the kiss of death mm -hmm. if you were a science fiction. Sure. Yes, yeah. well, because the market... Battlestar on sci-fi broke this ground, and then they had Doctor Who when we had the well, David Tennant. The Chris thing that's Eckler. changed is our DVRs. You know, everyone's time-shifting, so it's... Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean... But, you know, the success of the X-Files on Sundays, as an example, really wasn't changed Wasn't that originally on Fridays? It was, yeah. and then they moved it. And if you, if you go back to, it wasn't wasn't Star Trek on Fridays. It, one well, that's its last season. That was its kiss of death because back then there was no time shifting. There was no VCRs. Forget about DVRs. And that's when the market for that show was out. It was a younger audience, and they were yeah. Friday nights. They were out. Audience were out doing things. Yeah. Yeah. So I, but, I'm always kind of well. I mean, this is. 2011. So, you, like you say, there is the time shifting factor going on. Sure. And I guess sure. Battlestar opened that door that Friday night suddenly signed. Well, the other good thing that me, that CFE with the next generation and with X Files has been more uh, more successful. Well, the thing with Battlestar Galactica and at that time the Sci-Fi Channel, now Siffy was doing, was they would also rebroadcast it again. They had it at what nine o'clock, and then they showed it again at midnight. Or one o'clock, or whatever it was. It was uh, unlike yeah, traditional of, TV. Now on 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 cable, and in particular on the satellite services. If you subscribe to the stars, you oh yeah, the definitely. Stars as well, yeah, so. yeah. Well, that's yeah. what that's what I'm saying. That's what the, the stars. That's what has changed with with these things. You know, the, the, this is their show. They're going to want to put that in their on-demand package. Exactly, but but what is also easy to forget is is is, is as well that with stars. It's not been the case with previous productions of Torchwood that it's been a sole BBC production. This is new now. They, they're pulling up a, a huge chunk of money to be, you know, in the production with this. So I can't understand why they would then say, OK, you guys can show it first in Britain, but we'll hold it back several months in the US, particularly not with, you know, the Children of Earth being broadcast at the same time. I um, James, I don't think that there's any indication that it will be anything but day and date um, because we sure. work, every, everything that's happened recently has all led to that with both yeah. Torchwood and Doctor Who. Yeah, particularly with Doctor Who recently because, I mean, in, in Canada, um, before going back up to 2005, when the CBC had a, a huge stake in Doctor Who, it was pretty much simultaneous. It was a week out or something, but it was very, very close. And now with BBC America and, and BBC America showing huge support for Doctor Who, um, way more than uh, Siffy or the Sci-Fi Channel ever did, they are going to have it simultaneous as well. It, it just doesn't make sense anymore to, to do that. And I think that, that finally the TV executives have figured this one out and realised <laughs> if we don't show it simultaneously, it'll just get up on, on the feeds, on BitTorrent and all the rest of it, and people will watch it and they won't watch it you know, when it comes comes out later on. Well, the hardcore fans will, but the casual fans certainly won't. So it needs to be as simultaneous as possible. Yeah, well, the other factor now is whether or not it's going to iTunes immediately because it's a premium channel, unlike BBC America, which was a cable channel. It wasn't a premium channel. So the uh, stars may want to hold on to it before it goes on, you know, for a while and let it run its sure. course, you know, rerunning it and uh, have some repeat value before it goes to uh, to iTunes, yeah. if it even it does. 
go to iTunes. I think I think it probably will. They'd be daft not to because iTunes mm-hmm. well, pretty much dominates the market, doesn't it? It, it depends on whether or not it's shown in a U.S. market. Like, for instance, the Sarah Jane Adventures, only the first two series are available on iTunes because the second two still haven't been shown in the U.S. on a channel yeah, yet. Holding back, I suppose, hoping for a TV deal. I'm surprised that BBC America hasn't tried to pick you, that up. You would think, because it's a natural tie-in to, um, yeah. to Doctor Who, and they're having success now with other science fiction shows. Aren't they showing, or is it sci-fi showing being humans? One of them are. One of them is. And, and you have, isn't Primeval on BBC America? Yes, Primeval. I, I, I mm-hmm. wish I could tell you, but my cable company doesn't carry BBC Yeah, America. same here. You're not missing anything, <laughs> don't worry. I, I, was, I was quite disappointed in a way because um, they cancelled Primeval a couple of years ago didn't they but they've since brought it back and they've started doing it again uh, new shows here in the UK so they're filming again and have a a whole new series whereas they'd actually at one point they'd they'd axed it so um, James is it back on where it originally started or did somebody else pick it up no no it's it's the same same channel Um, I don't know if as I say, I've, I'm not a fan at all. Um, I, I watched a couple of episodes and it didn't sit well with me at all. I know that, that I've seen the promos on ITV. ITV is the guys who do it over here, which is why it's really confusing. Whenever BBC America seems to just buy any of the sort of big British shows, irrespective of whether they're actually made by the BBC, which is a bit confusing, it's ITV, the guys who did Primeval over here. Mm. Oh, very good. But no, it's interesting, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how it all pans out. I'm really excited because Children of Earth was so brilliant, and I was never really that huge of a Torchwood fan. Um, season one was mediocre, and season two it got better, mm. but season three was just fantastic. So I'm really, I'm really excited about uh, the new series of Torchwood, whatever they end up calling it. New, yeah. new Earth, Miracle mm. Day, whatever. And, and just um, for those that may not know, it's a just like Children of Earth. It, it is a story arc uh, season and ten episodes, I believe. Yeah. And but they, uh, they've they've added since the last time we recorded. I mean, we we mentioned Mackay Pfeiffer and, and the the various actors and actresses that have been announced, but they added one more to the mix with um, Lauren Ambrose from Six Feet Under. That was that was announced in the last couple hours or. Oh, okay. So, Interesting. Wow. Well, they're being quite aggressive, really, and they're, they're casting quite a lot of big names, a lot of people who have been in uh, top-rated U.S. shows, which is fantastic. Got some good talent there. Mm. Tate in Much Ado. Um, when we first recorded this show, Ken brought this to my attention because it, it, the story had originally run on uh, BBC Breakfast, the morning sort of chat show. Um, well, it's sort of the news and a, and a chat show as well. Kind of like Good Morning America, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And um, basically, David Tennant and Catherine Tate are going to be uh, in Much Ado about nothing. <laughs> One of Shakespeare's most famous plays. Uh, it's going to be on at the Wyndham Theatre in London uh, starting on the 16th of May this year. Um, and what's really interesting about it is we were sort of speculating last time um, how it came about and, and how it um, how they'd been approached and so on. 
but I w- w- was really interested when I went back and watched the breakfast interview that um, Catherine was saying that the idea basically came from them. They always wanted to do it. Um, and I was quite surprised when I read about it or when Ken told me about it because Catherine Tate, well, she's, I think she went to drama school and she's always been a sort of a comedian in things. Yeah, she's best known as a, for her comic abilities. Exactly, but she'd never really done any acting other than Doctor, Doctor Who. Who. Well, that was the big question when he, she was announced to to be on Doctor Who back with uh, Runaway Bride was whether or not she's going to be able to pull it off. Yeah, but, it, it, you know, even then she still hasn't done any Shakespearean acting, to, yeah. to my knowledge. Mm-hmm. That's, um, yeah. She talked to David about it, said, you know, what do you think? And he said, oh, I, that sounds brilliant. I've, I've wanted to do much ado for years, especially with you. That would be brilliant. And, uh, I mean, I guess the Wyndham Theatre snapped it up because David was such a huge hit in Hamlet. Mm-hmm. It's really, really awesome. And, well, it's uh, interesting, you know, because he was in Hamlet and he brought in a lot of... He, well, he maybe he exposed a lot of Doctor Who fans to Shakespeare, where and, and now I think the same thing's going to happen now when you have both Tennant and Tate, you know, in a production together. You know, yeah. they're going to be coming with, with Doctor Who stuff to get autographed. And <laughs> That's right. That's right. But what's also cool about it is um, David Tennant isn't a stranger to this particular role. Um, he's going to be playing Benedict, and he's played it previously in a in a BBC Radio Three ad- adaptation, which was I think was broadcast way back in 2001 or something like that. So quite a, a long time ago. He's going to be perfect for it because he's, he's already done it once before, albeit as a radio play. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be great to go and see it. I'm going to go and see it. Um, it's Lydia's favourite Shakespeare play. She's an English teacher, so even if I didn't want to go and see it, it would go towards <laughs> my arm. So I'll, I'll let you know what it's like in May. But the 16th Fantastic. of May is, is when it starts anyway. Cool. An announcement about the Doctor Who Podshock companion app is um, there's an update that's being, it's right now it's already been submitted, so hopefully maybe by the time this recording goes out it will be available and that will hopefully fix a iPad bug that would uh, having some problems with our episodes being shown and speaking of episodes there's a new exclusive episode available in the app and again this app is available via iTunes and it helps support the show awesome and, yeah and there's a an android one possibly in our future there hopefully will be there's um we're working on that right now so once we have a better idea when that will be available we'll announce it but yeah it's in the works cool may i give a gallifrey update hold on <laughs> now you may it's, it's too bad we don't have like a, a airplane sound effect you know being <laughs> Okay, well, Sunday, uh, first, the schedule is up for the tentative schedule of events is up on the Gallifrey One website for Gallifrey One Catch 22 Islands of Mystery. Uh, one of the advantages of re-recording is I can get that right because, <laughs> because I have all the notes with me. Uh, we'll have a, a hotel update on that as well in a second, but we are doing our show live on stage. Our Sunday afternoon tradition continues 2 p.m. on Sunday afternoon in the main hall. We have uh, Neil Gorton, 
Paul Casey, Tom Price, Kai Owen, Ian McNeese, and not one but two special surprise guests that aren't on the guest list, aren't announced. Very special. The only hint I'll give you is we have one male and one female. Oh, now you give it away. Now you you gave it all away. <laughs> I said now you gave it all away. Uh, no, I did not give it all away. <laughs> I'm only kidding. They've never appeared with us live on stage before. Uh, they are joining us. We have seven guests. That's an impressive lineup. For the Gallifrey live show. It's a good job we'll be taking that alarm clock with us this time. We'll be yes. taking several so, alarm clocks. So. <laughs> clock on stage. It'll look like Flavor Flav. I'll just have a big clock around my, my neck. Uh, so that I can stay on time this time. But, um, well, you know, th- this is something that I work on all year. It's a it's a big to do. So I hope you'll join us for a lot of fun. Something that's a little bit different live on stage. And afterwards, we will have um, our surprise guests will be signing afterwards in the the hallway outside there. There are some guests that will some guests that are signing will be in the dealer's room. Some guests will be out in the hallway. The Gallifrey's got the entire convention floor for Mm. the first time in its 22-year history. It is going to be the biggest Gallifrey of all time. It has the most pre-registrations they've ever had. It has the most floor space they've ever had. They have the most guests they've ever had. It's the biggest this year. And for those of you with hotel concerns, you can go to the Gallifrey One website, click on hotels, and you'll see that there's still room available. As an example, the Crown Plaza, which is literally so close you could throw a rock at it. Uh, Crown Plaza has room, so does the Sheridan, so does the Radisson. There's a whole bunch of hotels in that area that are very reasonably priced, all within walking distance. You have to remember, walking in L.A., you know, is just beautiful. You've got the palm trees and the sunshine. It's not like walking around New York at this time of year where we're sledging through a foot and a half of snow. Yes. <laughs> so I, a friend of mine had booked um, at the Crown Plaza and said, you know, it's a piece of cake. He's like, I'm, I just booked over there because the hotel situation is a little crazy with the NBA All-Star game in town that same weekend. Sure. But it's, yeah. it should not discourage you. It's, it's, it's not, right across the street, isn't it? Yeah, and I, as I was on the original broadcast that mentioned, we keep saying that. This is the NBA All-Star Game, not the Super Bowl. Uh, it's not a championship thing. It's basically a scrimmage amongst the, the famous people in the NBA. So it's a situation where, you know, when you, when you have something that's, that's really crazy and really big like the Super Bowl, people come from everywhere and it's like a high priority. It's a basketball All-Star Game. In, in sporting terms, it's the equivalent of a preseason game. Yeah, just with more famous people. So it's just I'm, kind of an opportunity I, to show off, really, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and I, so I'm not. I'm very surprised that they're going as crazy as they are about. Oh well, you know, look at all the hotel rooms, and we have to make sure we have hotel rooms. Come on, give me a break. Mm. It's Gallifrey. Mm. Yeah, surely that should eclipse any sporting event. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Well, if that doesn't, and if our live show doesn't do it, we're also having a meet and greet once again on Thursday night in the lobby of the hotel, so be sure to... That's the official, unofficial, official... (laughs) We're going to do that again? (laughs) In the lobby. The official... It's not officially part of the con, but... No, it's not, but it's... Unofficially, it is, though... very nice. He put it on the website saying, listen, people rave about our lobby cons and 
and this is one of the reasons why. So if you're there early Thursday night, we'll be in the lobby having a um, having a few beverages, having a uh, a few cordials. Well, we, we recommend you coming at least on Libations. Thursday, not not just for our meet and greet, but also Friday. Things start at think at what eleven a.m. or on Friday. Yeah, what, what I like about and this is just again thumbs up as to why Galley is my favorite convention. They have pre-registration on Thursday for a couple hours, so if you're there on Thursday, you can go down to registration and pick up your badge a, a half a day ahead of the convention starting, yeah. and now. You don't have to worry about being online in the morning. You can yeah. just go and do your thing. Yeah, you can have a leisurely breakfast, and then you know you can get up. You know, the, the advantage of getting there Thursday is that you don't have to really rush to on Friday to get there because it's it, you know, it's not like it starts at two or something like that. It starts early in the well, not that early, but still early in the morning. And yeah. it's, the guest list this, this year includes Peter Davison, Janet Fielding, Sarah Sutton, Tracy Simpson, Matthew Waterhouse, John Leeson, Fraser Hines. John Levine, Kai Owen, Tom Price, Paul Casey, Neil Gordon, Sheridan Smith, Ian McNeese, Sarah Douglas. The list goes on and on and on and on. The, the list is colossal. James <laughs> Moran, Gareth Roberts, uh, Gary Russell, Clayton Hickman, I'm the, Tony Lee. The list is endless how many guests are there this year. And it's they're packed, adding more and more house. all the time. As soon as, as soon as they know that people don't have, like, um, working commitments and things and can make it across... They're adding people all the time, which is brilliant. Really, really cool. There's um, there's tons of tracks. There's a science track. There's a, like real science track. Um, there's a bunch of book launches going on this year. There's podcasters a go go. I mean, there's two dozen, at least two dozen different Doctor Who podcasts. That'll well, be the customers, artists. Um, I mean. Any every aspect of fandom, knitters are there. I mean, every aspect of fandom is represented at the convention. Absolutely, very well too. Yeah, that's our that's our gush about Gallifrey, which we, you know, you we know do regularly. But if you've been if you've been, you'll understand. <laughs> and um, our uh, uh, podcasting cohorts, uh, Radio Free Scaro, is doing their first live show, which on is fantastic. Friday. Yeah, yeah. Which I love, by the way, they call it Radio Free Scaro in 3D. <laughs> so your only chance to check out a podcast in 3D. In 3D. Mm. Well, we'll be in 3D as well. Uh, we will be in 3D, that's true. <laughs> well, maybe we'll be in 4D. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't gotten past 2D, so. <laughs> <laughs> but no special classes are required for our show. No. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. That's mm. next well, you could wear, you, you know, you, the cyan and, and red glasses, if you will, you know, do a whole Tenth Doctor thing. It won't have any effect on our show, but if that pleases you, you can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there'll be a few fezzes in the house, too. Come to the- I'm sure there'll be many. <laughs> and some yeah. dropped in the hallways. We'll <laughs> see them sprinkled about. And, right. Any other news? else in the newsroom? There was one thing that I f- forgot to mention. Uh, hold on, earlier, hold on, actually. hold on, then. Um, which is for the 2011 series. Oh, the, the changing of the order? That's right. They're, they're, they're messing about with the, the order a little bit. Stephen Moffat, when he was talking to Doctor Who magazine recently, has let loose that he's, he's actually shuffled the running order of the series um, because Mark Gatiss had written a story 
but that hasn't uh, and that originally I think was in the first half of the season because they've they split it in two and are having uh, a first half and sort of a second half of the season one shown early ish sort of spring 2011 and the rest shown later on in 2011 um, and I think they've now moved that into the second half of the season um, in autumn so you've got the spring season, if you like, and the autumn season. It's it's almost like a fashion catalogue or something. <laughs> um, but the empty slot now will be filled by an episode written by Stephen Thompson, who, although he's new to Doctor Who, he's a very much an established writer. Um, he's done a lot of work with Stephen Moffat in the past, most notably writing um, the second episode of Sherlock as in the Sherlock Holmes series, which Mark Gatiss and Stephen Moffat did very recently. And that was called The Blind Banker at the and time. And it's coming back, by the way. It is. And I think that's probably the reason why they've also separated things out into a spring and an autumn broadcast. So to give the guys, I guess, time to work on, extra time to work on the special effects so Stephen can go away and work on Sherlock and all the other projects that he's working on. Anyway, uh, Moffat has told uh, DWM that the changes are there, the shift is, is there purely to balance out the look of the series because the production team was worried that there weren't enough shots outside in the first half of the series. So even from that little snippet, we know that the first half of the series is going to be largely a studio-based show. I guess there might be a lot Other of episodes. Other than all the Utah filming. Other than the Utah filming, but we don't know when that's going to appear. If that's isn't that the first two episodes or the, the second half? I don't know. Oh, I, I can't remember. I'm going trying to remember. No, it's going supposed back. to be the first two. Episodes. The first two episodes. Oh, is, is what it? Okay. I wear uh, stets now. You know what? I was talking with uh, with a friend of mine the other day about. Um, you know, we had heard that Paul Cornell was writing for the series, and and even now with so much information about some of the stories going on for this season haven't heard his name mentioned once yeah it's it's peculiar so i don't know whether he submitted something and and that's what the news was originally whatever that was last summer uh yeah. or, or just that we haven't really heard the block of writers for the i should say the, the writers for the second block yet yeah um, i don't know they i think they're keeping their cards close to their chest aren't they uh, or they're just not certain as to where as the case with this that there some things are getting shifted around a little bit for yeah. other reasons yeah mm. uh, just uh, going back just um, a note about Gallifrey it's about five weeks away or four weeks away depending on when you're listening to this we'll have more updates in future shows including a special preview show that we do traditionally every year previewing Gallifrey for newcomers or even people have been there before yeah yeah that's um, that's one of the shows I really look forward to is like the preview because we sit and shuffle through the schedule and you think and we're it, gushing now just you yeah ones. but it's it's a way of sort of hashing out even even as much as I read the schedule now when we get to the point where we're recording it other things become apparent when let's say Lewis or James says oh I that sounds great or something and 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 sometimes just from from talking about it other things that um, it becomes apparent that you're interested in something that you didn't realize. Um, yeah. So mm. I'm looking forward to that one. 
All right. Well, I hope we'll, we'll have someone representing the convention there, perhaps Sean or um, someone from the staff there on the show, giving some. Hopefully, it's always yeah, good to insight. Have on board. Yes. Bit of yeah, inside insight, if you like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So, if there's any other, if there's no other news, we'll come right back. I think we've covered the news. Okay. Let's come right back. <laughs> sounds good to me. This is Annika Wills, and you are listening to Doctor Who Podshop. Hey, we've been talking about Gallifrey. Gallifrey 22 is only weeks away now, and we want to bring our live show back there. We want to bring all Doctor Who Pachak back to Los Angeles for the convention. So once again, we can do extensive coverage of the annual show, and the only way we can do that is with your help. You can help by becoming a Pachak supporting subscriber. To learn how to become a supporting subscriber, simply go to podshock.net or arttrap.com and click on the banner towards the top of the page in regards to becoming a supporter. With your help, we can all go to Gallifrey 22. And if you are already a Podshock supporting subscriber, thank you so much. Your help does make a difference. And we have a bonus extra episode coming on the heels of this one. So watch for it on your Podshock Supporting Subscriber personalized feed. One of the things I always enjoy doing on my trips to Gallifrey in the past is listening to audiobooks. And one of the leading providers of audiobooks today is Audible.com. They have over 75,000 titles to choose from, and that's covering every genre, be it thrillers, business, history, science fiction, or fantasy, and, well, basically, you name it, they have it covered. Audible content is compatible with iPods, iPhones, iPads, MP3 players, over 500 devices for your listening pleasure anytime, anywhere, just like this podcast. For you listeners of Doctor Who Podshock, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 14-day trial so you have a chance to check out their service. To download your awesome free audiobook, simply go to audiblepodcast.com slash arttrap. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash arttrap, A-R-T-T-R-A-P, for your free audiobook. And we always like to make a referral or a recommendation, and we try to do some Doctor Who titles. And, well, one Doctor Who title that came out a few months ago, I think it was in October, is The Coming of the Terrorphiles by Michael Moorcock and narrated by Clive Mantle. It's an all-new adventure featuring the 11th Doctor and Amy. There are dark tides running through the universe, so strong they swallow light and threaten Captain Cornelius's familiar existence. If unchecked, they will absorb the whole of creation. But for now, he tracks into the solar winds, searching for the only being that he acknowledges as his peer who is known simply as the Doctor. Whoever named the planet Venice named her well. Her golden surface was crossed by a million regular waterways, so that from space she resembled a papal orb. Clouds followed the canals in season and emphasized rather than obscured her geometric character. Venice was a rich and lively world, 
More space travelers deserted to her than to any other of her nine or so rivals in the star system of Calypso V, whose ranks included Ur-17 and the extraordinarily beautiful New Venus, where colonists risked every danger to enjoy her yearningly lovely landscapes. Like all inhabited worlds, Venice was forbidden to the great rockets of the IGP and the larger interstellar mercantile vessels of the Terran service, whose routes were frequently challenged by privateers in their subtler, sometimes faster ships, some of which still use the increasingly erratic solar winds for power. The Twelfth Intergalactic War, which had destroyed whole star systems, left by common consent the planetary prizes unspoiled, and surface conflicts were confined to the legally conventional weapons of the region. In Venice's case, these included battle barges of enormous dimensions, their hulls driven by massive sails whose canvas covered distances measured in fractions of square miles rather than cubed meters, and speedy little gondolas employing oars as regularly as they used wind. These boats darted along the wide natural waterways like bugs, their sweeps so many articulated limbs. From space, on the great V-screens, they appeared as creatures endowed with minds and purposes of their own. Cornelius the pirate had once employed those gondolas very successfully in pursuit of his trade taking full advantage of the confusions and disguises offered by war. For the past half-century, however, he had made little use of them. There were few land wars on Venice, few conflicts of any kind now. All traffic was conducted by water. Canals occupied four-fifths of the planet's surface. Venice was not one of the many terraformed planets created by the great commercial world-building companies. Whatever gravities had shaped her had done so naturally. People had long since discovered that symmetry was characteristic of most planets formed in the nativity of their geology. Even the howling, fruitful terraces of Arcturus and Arcturus owed their... Mm, the coming of the terraphiles. That could be your free audiobook, or you can choose any of your liking that Audible has to offer. Once again, to download your free audiobook, simply go to audiblepodcast.com slash arttrap. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash arttrap, A-R-T-T-R-A-P, for your free audiobook. And remember, you can go to our website, arttrap.com or podshock.net, and click on the link there for the offer as well. Climb on board, we're setting our TARDIS back to the 1980s with a special interview with Terrence Dix. The interview is conducted by Charles Rabb, also known as Chuck Rabb. This originally aired on WPEB Radio in Pennsylvania. Special thanks to Charles Rabb and Rabb Productions Incorporated for granting permission to share this interview with you, our listeners. Also, thanks to Mohan on the Doctor Who Podshock website. That's podshock.net in the forums there for digitalizing the analog recording for us. My co-host is Joel Spivak, and I'm sure that everyone knows who he is after being a co-host for Chuck Wagner of the Auto Man, presently a very uh, 
big show in Great Britain. And with me tonight is a guest from Great Britain, Terence Dix, who has had some things to do with Doctor Who, the television show, BBC show, which is currently a very high-rated show on public broadcasting system here in the United States of America. Terence, welcome to the show. Thank you. I think I'm going to turn this right over to Joel Spivak because he's a science fiction expert. Joel, what kind of questions do you have for Terrence Dix? Well, Terrence, I'd like to know uh, if you have any opinion on why you think Doctor Who has become such a phenomenon in the United States. Well, it's really, I think, tied into why before that it became and stayed such a phenomenon in Great Britain. Um, it's fairly unique in that it's been on the air on British television for 20, 20, 21 years. It's just coming up to its 21st anniversary. And during that time, it was shown a little and then a little more and then a little more in America. Suddenly, in recent years, it seems to have taken off. Um, I think the reasons really are the strength of the concept well, the appeal of the hero, the strength of the concept, which gives you the ability to do many different kinds of stories, and also the fact that, because unlike you know any other series, science fiction or otherwise known to man, it changes the actor who plays the leading character every few years, and as the Doctor regenerates, the show regenerates. So it's change and variety, I think, and growth that, uh, that makes who work so well. Right, it's become quite a phenomenon here in the United States, actually within the last year, mm. Mm. has picked up tremendously. Uh, it's the highest rated uh, fundraising show on uh, Channel 12 and Channel 23 here. Yeah. And of course, you can see the turnout at the conventions when you speak. Yeah, tremendous loyalty and enthusiasm from, from the kids. What uh, other involvements in science fiction have you had uh, over the years? Well, the main involvement has always been who. Um, I don't particularly think of myself as a science fiction writer, um, but just as a writer. Um, it so happened that at a certain stage in my career, I was when I was already established as uh, a freelance radio and television scriptwriter, I was invited to become script editor of Doctor Who, and I joined the BBC on the programme on an initial three-month trial contract, and there I stayed for five years. You know, there went the next five years of my life, and in a sense the next 15, because I've been connected with who one way or another ever since. Um, and I worked on the show as script editor, during, basically during the John Pertwee years. I've written for the show since then as a script writer, most recently with The Five Doctors. Um, I've novelized, I got involved in the program of novelizations of Doctor Who scripts, which is one of the most successful things in British publishing now. And over the years have written about something over 50 Doctor Who novelizations. But as far as science fiction is concerned, uh, it really has been Doctor Who for me. That's been, that has been my main connection. Have you, uh, in your own fantasy, have come up with anything that you would like to pursue uh if you had someone interested in, in producing, a, say, a science fiction show or a TV show that you would want to write scripts for? Um, it's very difficult um, to make science fiction work on television. Um, I once worked many years ago on uh, a British show called Moonbase, which was an attempt at uh, a factual account of what life like be, might be like 
for people on a base on the moon you know, in the year 2000 and something, perhaps. And although that was a good show, it had a small but loyal following, it never kind of made it in, uh, in, in the mass market because it was too realistic, too grim and too down to earth. Um, what seems to work, the, I, I think that only two shows have ever worked in the mass media in science fiction terms, and that's Star Trek and Doctor Who. And both of them share the kind of sense of fantasy and wonder and strangeness. Um, people want, I think, monsters and marvels and ray guns and spaceships. They want really, I think, really in the mass media you have to do space opera. And so I think if I were to try and think of a show, I would be aware of those limitations um, and would try to come up with something in that vein. Um, I never really have, you see, because a lot of my life has been devoted to making Doctor Who work, and that's a big enough job for anybody without kind of looking for other ones on, on top of that. Here in America, we see uh, Doctor Who programs that are five or six years old. Uh, I was wondering, uh, does the Doctor Who show in its current form, like if you were to see it day by day, uh, have any reflection on what's going on in the world? Uh, Symbolically, do these characters represent one country jumping on another country, or is there any political overtone in the, in uh, the story? Yeah, um, it's a. I'm sorry, it's a, it's a kind of a grey area, yes and no question. Um, certainly, nobody would ever sit down to write a message show, a message Doctor Who. Um, and uh, I'm sure the producers and script editors wouldn't buy it if they did. But on the other hand, you know, writers are human, they're a part of the society, they're a part of the world they live in, so are the people who make the program. And I think inevitably the kind of concerns that are in the air will get into the show by a kind of, more by a process of osmosis and um, out of the atmosphere than by deliberate choice. And we did a show called The Green Death uh, many years ago, which was in the very early days of the um, first concern when, you know, the kind of Greenpeace movement and the first concern that we were polluting the seas and destroying the world's ecology and that kind of thing. And The Green Death is definitely a kind of anti-pollution story. Um, it's uh, waste of some kind from a chemical works which produces for strange Whovian reasons, giant glowing green radioactive maggots, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing. But the, the, un, the kind of subtext of the story is that we've got to be, you know, that the un, uncontrolled science is very dangerous. So that was an instance where uh, something came, came, it got into the show. Um, again, there was a show called, uh, what was it now? It's one of the Peladon stories. I think it was called The Monster of Peladon which was very much about the impact of new technology um, on a primitive planet, uh, a planet which happened to contain very valuable minerals, and the Galactic Federation moved in and took over politically as friends and advisors, and they wanted to bring new technology into the mines because they wanted to get the vital minerals out quicker because they, were, they needed them to make spaceships in a war they were running. So, again, there were obvious political overtones and feelings in that, but it tends to be more something that happens inevitably rather than something that anybody plans. Do you think we'll get to see a current Doctor Who shows here in America? Well, I think it depends really on the extent of the growing popularity and on the extent to which the people that run your television services can be convinced that it's a good thing. I mean, 
it has grown quite starting, startlingly in the kind of PBS and public service broadcasting context generally. Um, I would think that somebody somewhere would see that, you know, here was a show that if you packaged and promoted and put out on prime time, you might really make a big impact with. It would really depend on having some somebody having the, the nerve, I suppose. I mean, I think... I, I'm not particularly an opponent of American television because I think you come up with some marvellous shows. You know, um, there are some shows we have in England like Hill Street Blues and Taxi. Um, one, or, one or two shows, uh, Barney Miller, I mean, which we, we see in England about midnight and is one, as far as I'm concerned, is one of the greatest comedy shows of all time. But I think the mass of American te television obviously tends towards playing it safe, conformity, backing the shore bets, you see, which is real Doctor Who isn't, but Doctor Who does work on television. I think if somebody would um, give it a chance on, you know, um, National Network and Prime Time and a good slot with good promotion, I mean, you've got all these kids, you know, behind you, in the way that Star Trek had, had, had the kids behind them. Um, Terence, when you write, do you have any particular format that you have to consider for Doctor Who as a television show compared to uh, a movie or a radio series? Yes, m uh, most certainly. Um, the job of the writer on a series is to write to a brief, because if you're writing Doctor Who, you're writing a Doctor Who story, which has certain sort of tenets laid down in it. Um, the, the, the tough part, as it were, is, um, is, I mean, you know, for instance, you're going to have the Doctor, you're going to have certain companions, you are going to do a science fiction story of some kind, either on Earth or on an alien planet. You should also be aware of the what's practical, of the budgetary restrictions, of the amount of filming you can have, of the amount of money that can be spent on special effects, on the size of the cast, all those things. So all those things have to be in your mind before you even start to work. When you start to work, the job is to come up with a, a story for Doctor Who which is original and inventive and exciting and in some way better and different and more original than all those other Doctor Who stories which have been on the screen in the previous 20 years. You know, it's, it's a tough act to follow and the longer you do it, the tougher it gets. Um, so that, that is basically the, the job of the, of the series and serial writer is to be original and creative within a very well-defined brief. Terence Sticks, when I look at Doctor Who, I notice that it's theatrical, that it appeals not only to the child but to the adult in a very theatrical manner. Is that what you're striving for? Um, the, the extraordinary thing about Doctor Who is that um, it started in England as a children's show and it evolved over the years into something different. Um, we now find that when we do audience studies in England that the audience for Who goes absolutely right across the board in, question, in terms of age and education and intelligence level and whatever you like to say. It goes from little kids who watch it hiding behind the sofa so that when the Daleks come on the screen they can duck and the monsters won't get them, to the viewing rooms of universities, all you know, the campuses, universities all over England are packed when Doctor Who is on because all the students and the graduates are watching it. We've had letters from professors of physics and psychology and economics raising points, you know, that were, that, that were introduced in the show. So you've got a total across-the-board audience, and what you have to do somehow is make a show that works on many levels at once, that a little kid can watch, and to him it's a chase about monsters, um, an older kid can watch, and yes, it's, it's still a chase about, but there's good stories. 
an adult can watch or a science fiction addict can watch and say, yes, here's a story that has some very interesting and co concepts and ideas going on be behind the surface, um, you know, under the surface. So we have to do all those things, you see, and that, that's really what's so difficult about it. Um, to go back to your question, I think it is... At the same time, one always tries to do this in a dramatic and in a theatrical way, in an entertaining way. You know, people do not, by and large, want to be lectured to or preached at or morally reproved. I mean, who is actually a very moral show? You know, I mean, it stands four square behind all the, the, the great liberal virtues, but it has to be put over, you know, in a way with, that takes in the Daleks chasing the doctor down a corridor at the same time. I agree, and it also has to take in the fact that the doctor is basically uh, pretty non-violent. Well, uh, this, yeah, the the um, the thing about this, of course, is that the doctor is non-violent. Um, he hates violence, and he is opposed to violence. Um, he always tries to prevent a violent solution, but somehow or other, he's always driven to adopt one in the end. You know, which is kind of a bit having it both ways. You know, um, if there was a scene where the doctor tried to reason with the monster, and the monster said, "Yeah, okay, you're right. Let's be friends," you know, <laughs> this would be a liberal, but not a very exciting story, but the Doctor will always try to make peace with the enemy before he reluctantly zaps them, but he frequently has to zap them in the end. Joel Spivak, another question for Terrence? I have two questions. One question is, uh, when the Doctor is babbling on all his uh, scientific uh, theories, is there any basis to real scientific knowledge in, in those little ramblings he goes on? i seeing him explain it now to this little kid yeah. on the show, and he goes into this little dissertation about his theory of what is happening. Is there any truth in that or is it all just it's it's another poetically written. Yeah, it's, it's another poetic when it yeah, comes out. Yeah. It's another yes and no, Joe. Um what you do is you don't contradict any known, simple, straightforward scientific facts. I mean, if you're in the area of known facts, then you check it and you get it right. And often the doctor will use as a kind of springboard a, a, a currently accepted scientific theory, you know, which is... Uh, and that will be scrupulously checked. Um, equally well, there is a point... If science gets sufficiently alien, it turns into magic. Um, I always say, you know, you have to get the internal combustion engine right, but nobody can argue with you about the warp drive of the Martian spaceship, you know, because we don't know. So we do go off into areas of, um, of poetry or nonsense or gobbledygook, you know, with a kind of a flavour to them. I mean, one of the classic Doctor Who lines, uh, which is, has now become an in-joke, is reverse the polarity of the neutron flow which I believe is scientifically fairly meaningless, you see, but it has a lovely ring to it, and John Pertwee, who started it, always used to enjoy f saying it because it had a, a rhythm to it, you know, a nice rhythm to it. And so that goes back to the early days of the show, and uh, in The Five Doctors, which I wrote for the you know, 20th anniversary recently, I just absolutely had to have a point where the Doctor is trying to fix a machine, and he looks up and says, OK, I've fixed it now, I reverse the polarity of the neutron flow, you know, and that's the kind of thing that gets a cheer from the fans because they know it. So it's a basis of fact, but we do go off very quickly into fantasy. What in your background turned you into specifically such a good scriptwriter, consultant, assistant producer, and everything that you do, not just in the terms of science fiction, but in the terms of appealing to a large amount of the public in such a large basis, not just children, but adults? I'm always tempted to answer that question, uh, you know, the old joke about the uh, 
the cowboy who says to the girl in the saloon, what's a nice girl like you doing in a place like this? And she says, just lucky, I guess, you know. Um, my life happens to have gone in that direction. Um, what I was good at at school was um, re was writing and, you know, what we call English, English language, English literature. This, I think, is partly because I was an only child and only children tend to be a little more solitary, a little more withdrawn, um, to spend a lot of time fantasizing inside their own heads. I read enormously as a child and still do. I mean, I've been reading something like a book a day for most of my life. I'm a total bookaholic, you know. You have to drag me past a bookstore because I'll come out with an armful of paperbacks. Um, and so that's always been my sphere of interest. So I think because of that, it's what I'm good at. And because it's what I'm good at, I'm able to earn a living at it, you see. And this, I think, you know, is the most marvellous thing, that to have a job which you like, you know, when, and when you go to work in the morning or start work at home, it's not, a, you, know, you know, oh, my God, you know, it's, hey, great, what are we going to do with this, you know. And, and that is the most tremendous advantage of life, you know. I mean, um, I always feel, in a sense, I'm not, uh, I'm not so much working as I'm being paid for playing, and that's, you know, that's something I'm very grateful for. That interview was recorded in the mid-80s, I believe it was probably around 1984 or so. I believe it was a year after the 20th anniversary of Doctor Who, so figure 1984, maybe 1985. It's always interesting hearing about Doctor Who at that time, and you know what? A lot of it still applies today, so it's still current and timeless. Taron Sticks is a, a legend when it comes to Doctor Who, not only as a member of the production staff, and uh, he's also done all the Target novelizations, and at one yeah. time that was the only way that you could relive past adventures of Doctor Who, because uh, they weren't keen on repeating previous episodes. No, and they certainly didn't have them out on, on VHS. Yes. Yeah, that the target novelizations were the VHS and DVDs of the day. Of the time, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I know Ken uh, had the chance to meet and chat with Terence recently, right? Yes. Uh, Chicago I, TARDIS. I went out to Chicago TARDIS, and, and actually one of the main reasons I went was to see Terence. Uh, of all the years I've been a Doctor Who fan, I don't think he's done a New York area convention. Yeah, not, not, so at least not in the last 25 years. And, and um, you know, I mean, Terrence is not a young man, and so I, I wanted to go and pay worshipful respect to the man and, um, and had a chance to, to have him sign my copy of State of Decay, one of the Target novelizations. And, um, and he's just, he was fantastic. You know, he had, had a chance to answer a lot of questions, and um, he, he was very uh, forthcoming with his opinions on the new show and and he's very supportive of of the new series he's really you know really thinks that it's that it's doing a great thing yeah but like all writers and fans of the show he had his opinions on what he liked and didn't like and whatever and, and made those known i but coming from a guy like Terrence Sticks, who has been so in, instrumental in, in the writing of the series over the years and, and the creation of the mythology it was interesting to hear what he thought was positive and what he would have done a little bit differently. Mm. Interesting. Well, speaking of interesting, Billy Davis, a.k.a. the White Robot, will is uh, back with us in a pre-recorded... Although he won't be the White Robot at this year's Gallifrey. He has a brand new costume, a black and white era costume that he is debuting at Gallifrey in February, February. Which he's being top 18th. secret about. 
<laughs> he's being top secret about. He he's, has been very top secret about it. We're gonna have to get some Botham spies there to find out what's some, going on. Some kind of, uh, <laughs> I don't know, something from the underwater menace, perhaps. <laughs> we don't know what it's getting to be. Well, we'll we'll have to uh, check his garbage and see what receipts are in there. Maybe if he's a, you know, if there's a scuba diving outfit there. But <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm not going with the Cyberman costume. Um, I, he, I know he was working on a Moonbase-era Cyberman costume, but I don't think that this, that this is it. I think there's he's going to throw us a curveball yeah. and, and debut a new black-and-white-era costume. Maybe he'll be a quark. That would be fantastic. <laughs> Dominator. Just in time, something. yeah. All right, well, something to look forward to. Hmm? Is that something to look forward to at Gallifrey? He's debuting this new costume at Gallifrey, right? Yes, sir. So um, another thing to look forward to. The white robot made its debut at Chicago TARDIS, and it was at Gallifrey last year, and so it's run its course. It's It was in the Dragon Con parade as well. It was, it was actually on CNN yeah. for the Dragon Con parade. CNN had covered the parade in Atlanta and, and, and to our knowledge it's the only time that the white robot has ever appeared in color on television <laughs> well it was uh, well it was I'm not going to get into it but it, I've seen it in other uh, on um, new media shows as well so it's pretty cool well he's speaking of pretty cool he did this interview which is pretty cool and let's hear it the adventures of the white robot Hello, Podshock listeners and Doctor Who fans. Greetings from space. This is the White Robot. Well, I'm not really the White Robot, but I'm, I'm using that persona to gain access to the planets and places that we good guys don't usually get a chance to see. The inhabitants of this planet think I'm here to discuss an alliance. Sometimes a special correspondent has to do these things to get an interview. Anyway, I'm traveling in an old spaceship, one that I'm told Flash Gordon used to use. It, it actually still has some fishing line attached to the top. I know you Doctor Who fans are thinking, why isn't he traveling in a TARDIS? Well, there were no T-40s available on eBay lately, but this old ship was. I got a good deal on it. It's not fast, but it gives me plenty of time to catch up on my big finish audios. Uh-oh, we're coming up on our destination of Mondas, and the year indicator says 2000. I wonder how they made out with that Y2K thing. Okay, anyway, time to figure out how to land this thing. Next time you'll hear from me, we'll be on the surface. Here we are on Mondas. And after a little misunderstanding, the leader of the Cybermen has granted me an interview. Hello, Mr. Cyberman. That is where we come from. It is called Mondas. Yes, I know. I will require your name. I am the White Robot. It is unimportant now. We are called Cybermen. Yes, I know. Yes, Cybermen. Yes. We are called Cybermen. I know. I, I said I know that already. You call them e 
emotions, do you not? Well, you were getting on my nerves there for a second. Uh, and who's the interviewer here, anyway? We were exactly like you once, but our cybernetic scientists realized that our race was getting weak. Certain weaknesses have been removed. Well, if I told you everyone back on Earth thought you were the funniest, cheesiest-looking Cybermen of all time, would your feelings be hurt? Feelings? No. That is one of the weaknesses that we have removed. And what's with that cake mold on your head? That was really most unfortunate. You should not have done that. You do not seem to take us seriously. Ah, I've hit a sore spot, haven't I? I told you it is impossible. We do not feel emotions. Listen to me. This close proximity of our two planets means that one has to be eliminated for the safety of the other. The one to be destroyed will be Earth. Okay, okay, I'll, I'll stop making fun of you. And what do you ask in return for this? These guys aren't very smart, are they? First, you will not harm Earth in any way. We will not discuss our plans. Ah, uh, okay. Um, second, you will let me leave Mandas right now. That will do. Now, we give you three minutes to go to the rocket. Well, that, this was a boring conversation anyway. Yes. Okay, I better get out of here while I got the chance. Yes. The white robot is taking off. Well, I just made it out of that one. Okay, I'm gonna send the transmission of this interview home. I have an old computer here on board from the, looks like it's from the 70s. Let me punch it in. Okay, I hope it makes it. Well, here we go, I'm gonna spin the dial and see where I wind up next. Adios, amigos. of The White Robot. So thank you, Billy. That was fantastic. It was better than I ever expected. So it's the adventures of the White Robot. Very it's just for those who who might know Billy and company. You know, he he has a similar thing that he does with Star Wars characters, and it's it's always fantastic. I, I really appreciate his sense of humor. Yeah, he's got a great sense of humor, Billy. Yeah, it reminds me of Mr. Jaws back in the 70s. Or, or um, the, the UFO one from the 50s, wasn't it? Uh, hey, Mr. Spaceman. Yeah, I haven't heard that one, but it's pretty interesting. <laughs> and hats off for him to, for his editing capabilities of putting it out all together. Yeah, he put a lot of effort in. Thanks a lot, mate. It's really, really cool. I know. I felt like I was transported there on his ship. <laughs> <laughs> Well, speaking of transporting, I think it's time that we start transporting, and we want to thank everyone for listening once again, and and thank you both for coming back and redoing this episode. Deja vu. That's no problem. Deja vu all over. <laughs> and in, in an upcoming episode, I think in honor of Peter Davison and crew being at Gallifrey, are we going to do a yeah, recommended... We were looking to do that. ...DVD... Mm-hmm. Thingy. I think we ought to, hadn't we? Really? Yeah. Something to kind of prep and 
So it's outsells like for and a Gallifrey convention preview. Those two things are on deck in the next month. So there's something to to look, to look forward to. to. Yeah. Mm. All right. Well, until then, everyone um, have a happy new year once again. I know it's already the middle of the month, but yeah, it's only February. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's still a happy new year. <laughs> happy new year. Well, this is the first podcast of the year, so happy new year to everybody. All right. Well, until then, cheers, everyone. Cheers. Cheers. You've been listening to Doctor Who Podshock, presented by the fan run Gallifreyembassy.org. Doctor Who is owned and trademarked by the BBC. Doctor Who Podshock is not affiliated with the BBC in any way. Doctor Who Podshock theme music by Jeff Smith at thejeffsmith.com. This has been a production of Art Trap Productions and is presented to you by the Gallifrey Embassy and has been made possible in part by supporting subscribers and donations from listeners like you. This show is also supported by the Doctor Who Podshock podcast companion app for the iPad, iPhone, and iPod Touch now available in the iTunes App Store. I've reversed the polarity of the neutron flow so the TARDIS should be free of the force field now.